Read and hear more about important news and policy issues at ncpolicywatch.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. North Carolina legislators held a dozen hearings in September to give the public at least some chance to have a say in the 2021 redistricting process. Unfortunately, since the hearings took place before any maps were released, speakers could only share very general comments about how they would like to see congressional and legislative districts drawn. Last week, at the same time the public hearings were taking place, a group of national scholars, political scientists, journalists, and advocates gathered at Duke University for a redistricting conference hosted by the Polis Center for Politics at the Sanford School of Public Policy and the Duke Math Department. One of those advocates, Kathy Feng, the National Redistricting Director for Common Cause, says to understand what's at stake, one must understand how this process is unfolding across the country and how it differs considerably from a decade ago. Let's talk a little bit about how we got here uh, in order to understand what's happening now and also what we imagine will be happening and what we can expect in the future. How we got here. So once every 10 years, we engage in redistricting. Um, that means drawing the lines for congressional state legislative, and all the way on down to local school board districts. And we're adjusting those lines primarily to make sure that the districts have equal population, which is why once every 10 years, in the year ending in zero, we take a census. Now, this time round, the census was impacted by the pandemic, just like everything else was impacted. And so the normal time for the census would be on April 1st of 2020. And this time around, as you can imagine, that was like smack in the middle of when, you know, uh, we were experiencing shutdowns and people were uncertain when we were going to open back up. And so the Census Bureau delayed a lot of their implementation of field operations and uh, had everybody staying safe at home until they could go back out into the field. And what that meant was that the census timeline was then stretched out uh, to about October of 2020. And it also meant that the release of data, instead of coming out in early 2021, was not coming out until August of this year. That has meant that a lot of states had to think about adjusting their timelines, right? And the pressure uh, to try to get those timelines and the lines adopted in time to either meet redistricting deadlines that might be in their constitution or election timelines, in some cases, states did what they should have done from our perspective, which is adjust those timelines, try to ensure that there is still some semblance of public input and transparency, and frankly, move your elections if necessary. In many cases for states, it became an excuse to rush. And rushing also means doing things behind closed doors, giving short shrift to public input, and in essence, moving lines that you had always intended to do without the semblance of any kind of public input. Now, there are a couple of states that had March primaries in 2022, which means that uh, unless they changed those primaries, they, they were going to be under a lot of pressure to, to draw those lines quickly. Uh, states like California, Texas, North Carolina, Illinois. There are also a lot of states that had early deadlines uh, built into their state constitution. And again, um, there were two kinds of responses. Um, what's happening right now is in part driven by what those responses are. Now, there were some states that went to their courts and said, let's adjust those timelines. Let's move, let's use the legislative process to move the primaries a little bit later. Um, and those states like California, Colorado, Michigan moved their timeframes so that you would have a sufficient amount of time 
between the release of the data in August and when you needed to adopt new lines so that the public could still participate and you could have some transparency. Other states, like Illinois, decided, who needs to wait for the 2020 census data? We'll just adopt lines using old data. And then as soon as the new data comes out, we'll just tweak it because it doesn't really matter what the public says anyways, and we'll rush it through. And there are states that are sort of in between. I would say North Carolina, Texas, a number of other states where essentially they still are using the pressure of the changed timeframe to rush and minimize public input and, in essence, push through maps that they had always intended to. David Wasserman, senior editor at the Cook Political Report, has been watching how redistricting may change the balance of the U.S. House. Not surprisingly, he believes that absent an independent redistricting commission, the party in power is most likely to draw a map that helps it retain that power. The states where I think there's the most uncertainty are states where the state courts and state supreme courts matter more than ever. Ohio, Florida, and of course, North Carolina. Commission states like Arizona and California will really need to see the maps there before making sweeping judgments about how this cycle is going. But one thing that we can be sure of is that there will be fewer competitive seats than ever. We are are down to just maybe three or four dozen genuinely competitive districts every cycle, but I expect that number to be lower this time around. And I think red states delegations are going to get redder, blue states delegations are going to get bluer. Professor Michael Bitzer, a political scientist at Catawba College, told the audience that North Carolina has, for the past four decades, become the epicenter of the questions and concerns about redistricting. I think it is most appropriate that this conference is being held in a battleground state like North Carolina that for the past four decades has really been kind of the epicenter of so much of the questions and the concerns about redistricting. If you go back to the 1980s, you have the beginnings of the Thornburg v. Ingalls case, which really kind of set the tone and the dynamics for issues of racial gerrymandering. Move into the 1990s, the Shaw v. Reno case was the infamous I-85 corridor redistricting case that really kind of set both politics and race into a dynamic that we are still dealing with here in North Carolina. You move into the 2000s and we have the issue of the Bartlett v. Strickland case again, dealing with race. And then, as everybody has mentioned, the 2010s was the case of Rucho v. Common Cause about partisan gerrymandering. So most states tend to have a one-and-done cycle when it comes to redistricting. North Carolina has the distinct honor of never having a complete set of maps, either congressional or state legislative maps, last an entire 10 years for the past 40 years. So all of the dynamics that my colleagues have talked about, particularly those constraints, have either emanated from North Carolina in terms of legal principles, or we are seeing the political dynamics play out on the ground here in North Carolina, particularly the dynamics of things like urban versus rural polarization, the ground dynamics of how precincts are moving more and more into one political camp over the other, the issue of voter loyalty 
and the straight ticket voting phenomenon that is very much present in North Carolina politics. So I dare say the only prediction that I would make about what's going to happen with North Carolina redistricting, if the past four decades are any indication, we will again continue to lead the politics and the legal dynamics. The past decade has been a roller coaster ride for redistricting-related litigation. But when it comes to claims of racial and partisan gerrymandering this cycle, Harvard law professor Guy Uriel Charles believes the legal framework has not kept up with the political realities on the ground. We haven't fully answered the question, what is the Voting Rights Act for and what is its underlying purpose? The purpose of the Voting Rights Act is to address old, especially Section 2, the representation component. If it's to address old-fashioned racial discrimination, then the reality that follows is very different from sort of where the legal framework is now. If it's to provide representation to voters of color, sort of like as a normative right, irrespective of whether there is discrimination or not, broadly or narrowly defined, um, right, then um, then there's a different legal framework that ought to follow. So if you think that the goal is to that that the, that the goal is to address um, discrimination, sort of of the you know 50s, 60s um, fashion, where white voters weren't really going to, it doesn't make a difference what their you know, the shared party affiliation with black voters, they just weren't going to vote for them, right? So very narrow conception of racial discrimination um, and that you needed um, super majority, 65%, um, in order to have representation for voters of color. Okay, and a world now in which the rate that race and politics are much more closely intertwined, that yes, you have a fair amount of racism, but you also have a fair amount of crossover voting and that black voters, uh, black citizens no longer need to be a majority, right? So as Dave says, you know, they could be 40% or 30% and there could be a coalition with white voters, right? That really raises an existential problem for the Voting Rights Act. How should we think about it? I do think that if Black voters can show that Republicans are diluting the vote of Black voters by packing them, that clearly raises a Section 2 claim. So if they draw a 65% district where a 55% district is all that is necessary, I think both Black voters or or Democrats can, can bring the lawsuit and that they would win. I think the real difficulty and where you see where you see the majority on the Supreme Court where they're where they will continue to defect is where a 45% black district or 40% black district would be as necessary in order to then um, enable black voters to coalesce with like-minded white voters. That's the real problem. That's where the court doesn't really seem to be willing to allow the Voting Rights Act to move. And I think that presents a, a difficulty for how we think about the future of voting rights and the relationship between race and representation. And the problem with a case like Ronovich is that the court seems to believe that we no longer really have a problem of racial discrimination um, and that the real worries in the democratic process is not race and discrimination. And it is not about representation for voters of color. It is other things like voter fraud, right? So we currently don't have a model 
um, a Voting Rights Act framework to help us think about the current reality, not the reality as it existed in, in 1965, but the reality as it, as it exists today. Neither the left nor the right are very useful here in helping us to think through how do we address the fact that race and representation and politics are different today and to adjust the regulatory framework to address that problem. Others have suggested the best way to do away with gerrymandered districts is to simply divide the state up into equal quadrants. But Dr. Bitzer says, unfortunately, it's not that easy. Well, not every state is necessarily a perfect square. So, you know, you've, you've got to deal with, with that fact. Uh, the other issue is, yes, you're going to have to have equal population And as we know, a lot of Americans, particularly, uh, and this is the case in North Carolina, are moving to urban areas. And so those urban areas are are probably going to be concentrated with congressional districts, rural communities, rural counties are losing population. So the dynamics of how the size of a particular district will necessitate based on the first rule of redistricting, and that is equal population amongst them all. You've also got issues, as as has been noted, about communities of interest. And those typically, you know, tend to be kind of squishy in terms of what does that exactly mean? In from state to state, it could be different. Uh, Here in North Carolina, we have traditionally had the Western District, the district that covers the Blue Ridge Mountains. That has traditionally been a very much a district unto itself and has been drawn fairly consistently with some oddities from from now and then. But you've got this, you know, population dispersion that I'm not real sure how you necessarily cut a state into equal dynamics or equal dimensions without, you know, some issues otherwise popping up and having to be dealt with, as Dave and others have noted, the conditions and the requirements surrounding trying to lay down these lines, you are battling multiple masters, And oftentimes that dynamic is what basically drives sometimes the oddities of the shapes. Mapmakers are supposed to employ several criteria in drawing fair maps, and these include assuring that districts have equal population, are compact, and that communities of interest are kept together. And while legislators have said that racial data will not be considered in the process, this remains a hotly contested subject. The General Assembly must approve the new maps at least a month before the candidate filing deadline for the 2022 elections on December 6. But most experts expect new rounds of litigation to follow. Ultimately, of course, the outcome will help shape our democracy for the next decade. Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncpolicywatch.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries on Apple Podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, this is Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views. A weekly look at state and policy issues is a production of North Carolina Policy Watch. Visit them online at ncpolicywatch.com.